0: I recently completed an executive MBA through UCT's Graduate School of Business. This podcast forms part of a series of podcasts I'm doing with fellow EMBA students to learn more about their research projects. Today, I speak to Karen Dawson. Good morning, Karen. Morning, Pedro. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, what do you do, and why did you decide to do an EMBA?
1: All right. So I'm the CEO of PayU South Africa. I have been in technology, I would say, for most of my life. I worked abroad for about nine years. Now I'm back in South Africa for 10 years. Um, I became the, the CEO of PayU at a very young age. I would say we were, we were both young because I was young and, and PayU was also a, a startup when, when I took over and it, it ne- needed to go, um, undergo massive transformation to form part of this, this global company. So I, you know, I was quite aware that I also needed to transform myself uh, to be successful in this role. Um, The process itself took a lot of self-study, so self-study, coaching, mentorship for the first few years. And I think that for at least two years, I don't think I, I, I had a decent night of sleep. I would say I probably averaged like maybe four hours, five hours if I was lucky. So in 2019, uh, you know, I could, I could finally breathe a bit, and this was really the first time in a long time that I felt comfortable taking some dedicated um, study. So this is, this is really where I started to look at, okay, so, you know, what programs were out there, what executive MBA programs were out there that I could, um, that I could undertake. A few things that were important to me, um, so I had hosted uh, a few London Business School students um, for a couple of years, and so I really started to value programs that had certain accreditation and that were benchmarked and globally recognized. I have very young children, which were even younger at the time. My, my youngest was under a year old when I applied and, you know, still quite dependent on me and attached. So I, so I also wanted something that I didn't, you know, I didn't have to travel excessively for or be away from home for long periods of time. Um, and then something that was value for money. I'm always conscious about that. And at the time, I wasn't quite sure exactly how I would I would fund this. So, So these are like the basic criteria that narrowed it down for me and I ended up Going with the um, the GSB,
0: and and what did you find most useful uh, during the two years of doing your EMBA? The most
1: useful. Okay, so the most helpful was self-discipline and um, consistency. So just consistently um, following a schedule for me. I think that that's what allowed me to be successful because. I just I have a very demanding life, and I also have a family, so that's something that I that helped me. Um, self self leadership. So some of the skills that we were we were we were taught um, that we had to practice. So mindfulness, um, having a balanced life. So exercise, following routine. I think that helped with my mindset and progress. And towards the end, uh, specifically, you know, around the research project when things started to go a bit south, south, I think that this has made like a significant difference. Um, uh, for me. Uh, I also feel the dedicated group work. So where we, we, we followed these finite cycles of two weeks work better for me. Now, I mean, obviously you will know this, that, you know, we went into COVID and lockdown. So unfortunately that changed over time. Um, and, I, and I found that uh, quite challenging, but I think the dedicated group work and how the course was structured prior to COVID um, had helped. Um some of the research papers followed the cycle of you could do a chapter and you could submit that chapter and you would get feedback and some lecturers also had this process where we could provide uh, we could engage in discussion for me that worked incredibly well because I I'm one of those I'm one of those mental people that talks to myself aloud <laughs> about everything. So, you know, and that's how I learn. I, I, I learn by engaging in discussion and just listening to thoughts and and gaining different perspectives. So that is something that really I think um, helped my learning journey.
0: Yeah. I mean, we did a a number of incredibly helpful um, subjects like uh, systems thinking and complexity and um, all of those sort of things and understanding strategy. And by the end of it, we did 18 months of of, uh, coursework. And then it all culminated in us doing a research project. How did you decide on the topic for your research project?
1: So during the program, I started to put down things that I was really interested in. Um, that I thought you know I could I could research more, but prior to the course I was already engaged in um, research um, around open banking, so I ended up sticking uh, to that. You know, so I think um, this is this is really how how it came about. So I, I wanted to contribute to something that was was new, uh, but was still in the sphere of payments. So that's how I ended up choosing open banking. So what was the title of your
0: research project?
1: It was an open banking relevance and assessment model.
0: And what did you think you knew about the topic before you started? Because we do sort of literature studies and we we have an underst- we think we know something about something before we start yes. our project. What did you think you knew about the project?
1: So I was already researching it prior to undertaking the MB program. But it was it was other people that I'd employed to do some research mostly. And, you know, I'm always myself trying to keep abreast of the the payments landscape. So the distinct advantage that that I have is that my background is product and technology. So this is something that I'm passionate about and that PayU is a global company in 55 markets. So I have access to people and I have access to knowledge. So I had knowledge around PSD2 and then our own implementation experience of open APIs in Europe. Data privacy had become an important aspect of our business, particularly with regards to Papier, GDPR and consumer consent. And then a large part of our business is in, in India. So there, I had knowledge of um, ADA, the digital identity system, and UPI, Unified Payments Interface, which you know I knew that it had completely transformed um, the payment system in India. So in South Africa, we were also looking at open banking, um, and there was a paper that was put out by the Saab. It was narrowly focused around, around screen scraping. Personally, I also had been on a project about seven eight years ago. Um, with the various banks on open APIs. It didn't land, but so these were all the pieces of of knowledge that, you know, were were coming together. So so I knew knew a bit, but I didn't have any time for, you know, just a deeper, dedicated um, focus on this. So we
0: learned a number of research methodologies while we were doing our EMBA. Um, Which one did you select to, to do your study?
1: So quite naturally, because I'm, you know, in the field of information systems and technology, I use a design science methodology.
0: And, um, and what, what did that entail? How did you use the met- methodology to come to your outcomes?
1: So any research is focused on the, you know, just the theoretical aspects. And you, you have a list of hypotheses, which you're either, either proving or disproving or taking that and applying it to a different area or a different region and so forth. So design science, the difference is that you still have that theoretical aspect, but there's a portion that allows you to design an artifact of practical utility. And so I, I wanted to deepen my knowledge specifically around open banking. I wanted to learn how it came about, more about it. But I also wanted to design something, a practical solution that could be used particularly in South Africa to make an assessment, so relevance firstly, and then to make an assessment of of our own open banking implementation and could also be used in, in, in other regions. So what I didn't know at the time, I think is that, you know, this would be quite a protracted study because there was two parts to this. So that was quite difficult to complete in this period of time. I also I couldn't find a theory to explain open banking, which means I had to develop a nascent theory. And I did this by following something called a retroductive inquiry, which is also something that we didn't learn. So I just, you know, I felt like I lost a lot of time during the process trying to figure out what strategy it was going to employ to get to this information. But I finally got there with the help of my supervisor. So I conducted a systematic review of literature about money, the um, invention of banking and the evolution of banking from 600 BC up to the 2007-2008 global financial crisis. So that in itself was quite a hefty task. I then employed a critical realist ontology to develop this into explanatory knowledge, so essentially to develop the nascent theory and conducted interviews with 13 practitioners who had been involved in open banking implementation in some capacity in global markets so that I could link this, this theory, this theory of banking evolution to the open banking phenomena that we were, we were seeing. So I also had to use, um, I had to use grounded theory theory causal-loop diagrams, context-mechanism-outcome diagrams, and context-intervention-mechanism-outcome diagrams in, you know, extracting information so that I could I could develop some type of theory. And you're familiar with all these concepts because we've studied them excessively, but um, yeah.
0: So, so what was your, I'm just asking for myself, um, what was your theory of open banking? I'm not familiar with the concept.
1: Okay, so the, so as I said, there's two parts, right? So I wanted to understand open banking. So I wanted to understand what was it essentially and why it came about and then how was it being implemented in the various countries in detail. But to understand how it came about, I had to do this research and go back to the evolution of money and of banking because I needed some theory to relate open banking too. So. When I went through history, I started to, so as I, I went through all the, the times the banking had, so money had evolved firstly and how banking had evolved, I started to use these modeling techniques to create and reform a the theory over time. And I can cover it later on. There were certain characteristics of markets, economic characteristics essentially about competition, innovation, and the, uh, the reasons why a payment system exists And I put those together to form a model, essentially, about the banking system. Um, And then later on, um, which was related to market um, conditions. So certain conditions in the market that existed that a banking system needed to um, uh, cater for, essentially. So then when I got to, so the 13 practitioner interviews that I did, when I got to the point of um, open banking, I conducted the practitioner interviews to uncover what open bank, why open banking exists. So one of the major reasons was the GFC, but there were certain market conditions obviously that led to the GFC and that then led to PSD2 and, and this whole open banking um, phenomenon. And then I was able to link the, the, these market conditions and the evolutionary nature of banking to open banking. Essentially. Yeah, so, so, so what did you learn
0: at the end of all of this? What were your major outcomes?
1: It was a very long paper. <laughs> so there were quite a few, there were quite a few um, outcomes. But I'll talk about just the main aspects. So the first part is the nascent theory, right? So that's the theoretical contribution. So the theory of banking evolution, which was based on money, the establishment of, of a bank from 600 BC all the way to the the GFC. And then this gave me a significant amount of insight as to how banking evolved and what transpired um, before and after each change and the role, particularly of regulatory intervention, and also how we got to banking oligopolies after day. The second part of the study was the artifact that I needed to produce. So I I took theory and I took the findings around open banking evolution and why it occurs and open banking implementation around the world. And then I developed it into a model that had two parts. This is, this is the title. So the one part was the drivers of um, open banking in markets. And so this had, there were 23 of these drivers. And I'll cover this a little bit later. And this could be used to assess the relevance in a market. So does this market actually need um, the banking system to evolve essentially does it need to move towards open banking so that was the first part and once you assessed relevance the second part was a number of interventions that i'd found through the implementation of open banking that could then be uh, applied to change these market conditions, so essentially this is how you would evolve the system. So, so then you, yeah, so you ended up with a way to assess relevance, and based on the the assessment, you were then able to assess your country or region's implementation efforts based on where the world was heading. And then the the third aspect of this was. In any design science study, you need to be able to apply this model. So I took both the the relevance and the intervention aspect, and I then applied it to the South African model, and I interviewed um, a wide range of national payment stakeholders from fintechs, all the banks, so that I could um, apply this model and get some good recommendations for the market.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it was a very useful and beneficial study for anybody who's considering uh, using open banking in their country. And that would be our next question. So you've got these major outcomes and what did you then do with that? How did you apply this knowledge to your industry?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, design science is, is formed in that way where you have to, you've got to take something um, and you've got to start applying it, you know. And and ideally, there will be applications, several applications in the industry has, you know, has this model kind of uh, is refined over time and continues. Um, OK, so there's, there's three areas that I probably should cover here. So the first one really is the, the the definition of open banking, because there were numerous definitions. And this is probably something that you're also interested in. The second part is the assessment. And this was also for my own information. It was really important for me to understand if the move to open banking in these markets was it actually making a difference because I also needed to see that this was something that was useful. And I think that if you're trying to sell something to any country, they would really want to know there's a lot of effort, there's a lot of cost that goes into it, so much coordination, did it actually make a difference? So that was the second part. And then the third thing, is the artifact. So my application in the South African market, what results did it it produce?
0: If I can summarize, um, there were sort of three applications. It was around a definition of open banking. It was around, is it useful or does it make a difference to do it? Um, And at the end of it, you had an artifact which you were applying to the South African um, banking system. So um, what was your definition of open banking? And you can read it off if you want to.
1: Okay, great. So, you know, the open banking definition, so there's a few definitions, um, and I think this is still evolving because this is something that is still, um, it's a novel domain. And it's technically generally focused around two areas. They're called PIS and AIS, so payment initiation and account um, information services. So my definition, um, I use Checkland's root definition formula for this. Um, I found it, you know, there were so many different definitions as so, so I thought that this was, was quite a good way to write this definition. It is quite broad and hopefully will make sense. So um, it goes, open banking is a system that promotes fairness, competition and innovation by facilitating the secure exchange of data. And that could be individuals data and business data commonly held by banks with authorized third parties subject to consent. By means of technology innovations, so open APIs, in order to facilitate secure payments, account switching and other beneficial products and services that may result in cost saving, digitization, financial deepening and improved financial help of the consumer, and could produce longer term economic benefits. So it's quite a long it's quite a long definition. I try to cover all, all angles, but essentially I wanted it to, you know, to do that. Let me explain it um, to you, right? So you have these banking systems and banks will develop a whole host of products, essentially. Um, and over time, what has actually happened is that the whole banking structure has become quite oligopic, right? So they don't really share much. So you have all these fintechs that have become popular because they're able to innovate and they're more agile than a bank could be. And so you, you sometimes have these bilaterals where banks will open up certain APIs for third parties like fintechs to build applications. So PayU is a payment service provider, and we are essentially a fintech. We provide financial technology to allow payments. So all open banking is, it's saying that it's trying to move away from this oligopic nature of banks and saying that the banks should open their APIs, right? But obviously, it's a risky business, so there needs to be some standards in place so that third parties, instead of these very specific third parties, numerous third parties can consume these APIs. And by doing that, it will create an environment um, that is far more competitive and far more innovative and will solve problems for consumers that the banks have not been able to solve. Because we sit with a big problem right now that we've got 1.6 billion people that are still unbanked. And the whole point of a payment system financial system is is financial inclusion to facilitate trade so that's really what it is it's opening these apis to a broader base for competition innovation, and some of part of that is de-risking.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for explaining that to a person who's a non-financial type person. That's me. I'm a very technical person, not <laughs> a financial person. Um, so that was the first thing. It was around the definition of what open banking is. And then I imagine it takes quite a lot of efforts and work to make this type of system work for a country or for a system so and that was sort of your second finding you know is it useful will it make a difference if we do this and yes. and what's yeah. um what was your results in that in that area
1: yeah i mean okay so so i found around 23 market conditions um that would drive a change in the banking system so essentially would drive um, open banking and i want to i'm going to go through them very quickly Um, I'm going to list 23 of them, and I will tell you when I list them the ones that I found evidence of support for. So, and and these are essentially components of a healthy payment system. So, level of competition. So, I needed to find evidence that um, open banking improved the level of competition, and this I saw significant evidence. There were a larger number, I think, um, yeah, a larger number of, of third parties that were now included and licensed to participate. Um, with the various banks, uh, this had an increased level of innovation. So there were a lot more apps that previously had existed. So that previously didn't exist that were now coming up. The third one was financial loss and high fees. So one of the reasons um, that banking was promoted is because there was, you know, it was it was this whole sort of these banks and oligopoly, a few bilaterals in place, and so this led to high fees that consumers would need to need to pay. And also imprudent practices, um, and there was some evidence here that that showed that consumers were now um, there were better fees, there was more competition, um, and also you just from switching of services and so forth. So, so that there was evidence of that. Um, th- the fourth one was products and services. There were definitely more products and services. Um, consumer education. So were fi- were consumers more financially aware than they were before? And there were there were certain applications. It was still early days, but there were applications that existed to assist consumers in their education and financial decision making. Um, consumer adoption. So here I think that um, there wasn't significantly high consumer adoption. However. Um, the OBIE in, in, the, in the UK did show an increase in, in consumer adoption, consistent increase in consumer adoption, specifically around, I would say, the last year, where there was also an increase, a significant increase in, in e-commerce um, as well, and digitization due to due lockdown and COVID. Then on the consumer well-being, there was also um, data to show there was support for the well-being of consumers, and this is um, more around financial well-being and, and decision-making as well. Um, and then, the, okay, these, these two there was no support for, so not yet. So the one was that open banking improved economic conditions. And because it was early days, I couldn't find any quantitative data that actually showed or illustrated that it improved economic conditions. Another variable was around um, universal identity. This was actually out of the scope, so and I couldn't find evidence for it, so I wasn't too bothered about that. Then unregulated Products. Um, there was evidence that there was more regu- regulation, so and and quantifiable benefits from this. Data fragmentation. So there was also because there were um, there was a system of licensing more um, fintech providers into this into the system. There was a small degree of less data fragmentation, but I couldn't find significant evidence for this as well. Market pro- fragmentation. There was more licensing, so there was a whole process of licensing, so there was less market fragmentation. Adoption by licensed third parties, um, I found that ecosystem, um, bank adoption, I found that uh, market dominance. So there was some evidence that adopting open banking would, would provide some type of market evidence, and that was, that was clearly provided by some evidence I found in the UK. Then evidence around just um, architectural and, and, and process change in adoption, I found that implementation was very successful by following a structured approach. I didn't find um, implementation cost-reducing um, over time. This was something that was quite important because um, it's quite a costly project, um, I would say. It, it requires a lot of coordination, a lot of people, just a, a lot of resources. Enhanced fraud management, that was something that I did find. There was evidence of centralization, specifically in India where there was a reduction in fraud management, which is really, really important to the payment system. Um, Data around architecture and where the architecture is headed and architectural robustness, I couldn't actually find that. But I did find um, improved standards um, and quality in the payment system and better means of onboarding and and certification um, for third parties. The last aspect that I couldn't find any support for was one of the crisis. So open banking had a code or banking system generally occurred because there was some type of crisis. And that might have been from imprudent practices. But because no crisis had occurred, I couldn't actually find any support for that, obviously. So at the end of all of this, you built an artifact, which you then
0: applied to the South African banking industry. Is that right? And what did this artifact look
1: like? Okay, so of those outcome variables i also I took the outcome variables and I applied them to south africa so i I wanted to find if you know some of the conditions that had transpired in the other markets were conditions that would be applicable to the South African market um to establish some type of relevance and it was really interesting because I found support for twenty one of those variables that i'd Mentioned so this is it was quite overwhelming because there was only really um, two aspects that I didn't find support for. the 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 two things that were quite positive in the South African market was that there was still a high degree of consumer trust. Uh, so consumers trusted banks in South Africa, and then when it came to things like crisis, specifically the GFC, South Africa was a very resilient market in that regard. And these were, these were positive things too, you know, for conditions not to match on. But essentially those were, the, those were the two things. And then there was 19 interventions. So these were, when I went through all the open banking implementations around the world, I found 19 things that were um, implemented in, these, in the markets to change the conditions of, of the market. Um, and I won't go through all of them, but I will just, I will just give you high level some of the things that, I, that I'd that i found that were relevant to South Africa. So so I found evidence um, and a decent amount of evidence that, that South Africa was already in the process of transformation. And this is with on a number of levels, but also government had come to the party. So they were already making all changes and there was already some industry changes. So papers were putting out there. There was transformation. The Payments Association was trans, uh, leading a transformation with the bank. So they, this was really, really positive because... We weren't really, you know, in this kind of um, stagnation. We were moving forward. It was really still very early days um, for South Africa. And there was a positive part to this because earlier implementations couldn't benefit from foresight, you know. And if we look at some of the other implementations, um, so the the UK as opposed to Australia, the thinking was uh, a lot wider than just uh, data sharing in the banking sector it was looking at other um, industries other oligopic industries and the thinking had been elevated to looking at digitization and the data economy so I think that that's something that we could have we could really um, benefit from in terms of our journey into open banking the other thing that was that really stood out uh, from looking at the implementations in, in other countries, was the need for South Africa to have a digital identity management system and how this ties to financial inclusion. And specifically, a, a really good use case there is looking at um, the Indian market, um, or the ADAR system, and UPI, and what a fundamental difference that that has made. And the great news here is that we already have our own projects, um, the RPP project that kind of borrows ideas from India. The one thing I would say that we we need to still work on is a a digital identity management system. Um, The other aspect here is the importance of competition and working together. So South Africa still has quite an oligarchic um, structure with regards to banking, However, with the whole PIB changes, this is supposed to change. We are supposed to be a lot more inclusive now and include um, the fintechs, the digital banks, and a number of other third parties in the payment system, which is really, really important um, for us to move forward successfully. And the last aspect is really technology focused. And this, again, I think is borrowing from the learnings of other models on how to do things differently has an open banking system evolves by using blockchain technology, um, decentralizing certain aspects of the model, and then centralizing, um, switching, for instance, fraud management um, and consumer consent. Because um, if you think about this in like a layman's terms, if I am going to be sharing my data and if I'm going to be asked to share my data, so say – I have got an application and for this application, I am requested to share information from nine banks, you know, um, and then that's just one application, right? So I'm going to consent to these nine banks. And then in say that 90 days time, I have to kind of re verify that I want to continue to share my information. That's quite simple because it's just one application, but as the system progresses, you might actually have 30 different applications that require you to consent to your data being shared. And so for a consumer, this would become quite challenging over time. So there is certainly a lot of thinking that can be borrowed in terms of certain aspects that could be managed differently and centralized for our market. But yeah, in general, it's still early days um, for SA.
0: So at the end of the day, um, would you recommend South Africa to go forward with um, developing open
1: banking? Yes, definitely. Um, We already are. Um, It's very complex, uh, you know, and and I'm giving you just a little portion of what is covered in the research paper, but it's something that's very complex. I think we're making some really good moves um, towards open banking, but there is considerable evidence for support of why it is important to actually move forward in this direction, so... I think it's something that would be really beneficial and would help us to drive financial inclusion. There are certainly some very complex aspects to it, like consumer consent, where the consumer is now a lot more in charge of, I would say, you know, their data and the protection around this data. And given our population, I think that there's, there's even more consideration that needs to be given to the security aspects around this.
0: Yeah, because if you think about it, if you've got uh, a lot of people who are unbanked in the country, hey okay, and they have to give consent for their data to be shared and all of that, so, you know, the people who are uh, at the moment unbanked aren't necessarily close to big cities. They might be out in rural areas or those sort of things
1: yeah and that's something that came out in the in the South African study because urbanization isn't a massive problem for South Africa you know in other countries it is even is even bigger. However, we do struggle with education levels um, to some degree uh, literacy levels however, um, data sharing even outside the financial system um, you know has you know there's been so many data breaches. That have occurred and I think what's happened is you know we've moved towards digitization and this whole data economy so every single thing about us is actually it's stored somewhere online and the the way you know the model is, is moving towards the consumer being a lot more educated aware and also in charge of their data if you think about it in the financial system there's so many aspects that are kept away from a consumer because a consumer um, is data protection this governance actually happens by a bank, the bank, and, and you know, so so now we're changing this model a little bit to say, actually, there's a number of parties involved here, and we should all be responsible. And one of those parties is the consumer. So there's a lot of factors to consider in, in, in changing this. So so certainly, they are positives. It will achieve more financial inclusion, um, but there's also responsibility. And I'm not quite sure exactly how ready we are, and what that journey. There's a journey to get there.
0: Mm-hmm. And it was a journey for you to go through this paper, you know, so you learned a lot of things about um, variables and what's impacting uh, and what will work and what won't work in terms of open banking. But how did this whole process change you and the way that you think about things?
1: Yeah, I mean, this was really an exhausting paper for me, I and mean, I just it kind of stretched me and molded me in in so many ways that I cannot even explain to you. And I, you know, you obviously went your own journey, so you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. And I think it's like. There were many times there that I just almost threw in the towel and I was like, why am I doing this? You know? And I think there it's persistence, just really reminding myself of why this was important to me it was really, really important and sticking, sticking to that plan and to that journey. I think I was pleasantly surprised. So at the beginning of the paper, I thought there's nobody that's going to want to contribute or very few people that are going to want to contribute this. And at the end, I was really so surprised on, on two accounts. So firstly all the the global information and research um, that I'd done, you know, and the people that were willing to contribute, that was just incredible. The second is that I had to apply the, to apply this in South Africa. And so there was there was quite a bit of because South Africa had not actually made strides in open banking. I felt there might be some reluctance and initially there was, but here again I was quite pleasantly surprised on people sharing. And so I think this has just given me a very different perspective on really positively on that there is an appetite in South Africa to really really work together. We might have differences in the way we think, but there's this this appetite to really work together um, to improve, I would say, our system and to improve financial inclusion. The historical going through the history of money, the history of banking and how this evolved over time coming to open banking, I think just has been an incredible journey for me. Um, and I would, anybody who is in, in payments, in the payments field should undertake that. And I think that this has just given me a greater appreciation for, why financial inclusion is so important in fact, like I now look at it as uh, financial exclusion as being a failure of the the payment system, so this is essentially I would say igniting a passion even more than i'd already had um, and making me believe more in it, making me want to do a lot more and also just creating the sense of just not competing um, anymore, which I see, like I see competition as being something that's quite negative and really, really working together to drive um, bigger change. Well, thanks
0: so much for all of your insights and, and doing this research. I think um, a lot of people will appreciate that you persevered and got to the end of it and studied something that might be particularly useful for South Africa. So, thank you very much for that. Is there anything else um, in preparation for this podcast, a message that you haven't said up until now that you still want to get across?
1: So, I think for anybody that is undertaking any executive that is undertaking study, you will know that just having some time to, to do any dedicated study is really just a luxury. You know, for me, it was like, it took me so much time to get to that point of preparing my life so that I could do it. Pick something that you are really, really, really passionate about because that is what allowed me to stick the course. It was purposeful and I was passionate about it and was in my field. So that is what I would, that I would say for anyone undertaking this tremendous journey. Well, thanks so much
0: for spending time with me in the studio today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Karen. Great. Thank you so much for having
1: me, Pietro. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.